0: Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, thank you Uh, just for the joy of getting to be together. Um, It is a a joy to connect, uh, to meet with you, to connect with you, creator, and each other. I pray that this morning as we just enjoy this time, as we reflect together, that you would help us be our teacher this morning. And Lord, want you won't you do something this morning that, that goes beyond songs and a sermon, maybe some coffee and some chit-chat? Lord, that's all wonderful, and I, I suspect you're even in those things. But Lord, ultimately, we want to connect with you together in a way that transcends uh, routine, uh, just religion or some tradition. Lord, we long for more of you. And I trust that you will help us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so let's start with confession. Um, I'm going to ask you to confess. Usually I'm the one confessing these really awkward, inappropriate, no, uh, heavy things. Um, I'm going to ask you, I want you to confess, who here has already had chocolate this morning? What boldness, boldness, like without shame, no condemnation. <laughs> Love it, wonderful. Um, my kids, I think I've, there was some talk about like pacing the, the sugar intake in our home. I don't, I don't know if that's actually happening. <laughs> Pretty sure uh, the Easter baskets are quickly being whittled away. Um, anyone buy Peeps? Good, good. Peeps, Peeps. No, no, no. We don't drink Peep Pepsi. That's like that's next level weird. <laughs> Peeps. Peeps, um, yeah, peeps are weird. How did we get from the empty tomb to a giant rabbit giving kids baby chickens made of marshmallows? How did we get there? Um, All right. Enough, Enough banter. We have confessed. God is good. Let's talk about what we're really here to talk about this morning, and that is, in fact, it's, it's really, it's the subject that we should be at least touching on every Sunday, because as the church has been gathering on Sunday, the Lord's, the, the first day of the week, um, for what, 2,000 years? It's to remember and celebrate that our Savior is alive. That's why the church started gathering. When he died on Friday, what we call Good Friday. It was a time of deep sorrow, confusion. We thought he was our savior. We thought that he was the one, the Messiah, who's come to save the world, to restore the kingdom, to heal us. And now he's dead. And he stayed in the tomb for um, three days as as the ancient Jews would count it. And Sunday morning, around dawn, some of his disciples, um, a few of the women specifically, went to the tomb to, to tend to his body some of the things that they would do for burial. And they found an empty grave. As it turns out, Jesus, just as he predicted, had come back to life. And from then on, well, here we are. Here we are. And we come together every Sunday to celebrate that. We sing songs about it. We remember it. We reflect. We find hope in the fact that our Savior is alive. And we could, in terms of preaching a Sunday sermon, a resurrection Easter sermon, we could virtually open the Bible almost any place, old, new you, you name it, and find a place to, to sort of like springboard and talk about God's victory over death, the resurrection of Christ. Um, so, where does one begin? Well, this morning we're going to look at a sermon that was preached a long time ago. I love that we got a, a snapshot of a fourth century sermon this morning. This one's even older, this goes back first century. We're going to look at the book of Acts chapter 17 and consider a sermon that Saint Paul or the Apostle Paul preached on a on a little hill referred to as the Areopagus a long, long time ago. Can you guys turn with me if you have a Bible? This is Acts chapter 17. Beginning in verse 22, let me read these words to you. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything from us, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live On all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. <clears throat> of all the incredible claims that Paul makes, or any one of the early uh, leaders of the church, made about Jesus, his life, his teachings, the miracles, even his uh, sacrificial or atoning death on the cross. It was always when they got to the part about, oh, and he didn't just die, but that you might have assurance about all of these things. He's come back from the dead. And it was when the resurrection came up that people would, um, well, in this case, mock. Sometimes uh, violent debate would break out Later on in uh, Acts 23, we meet up with Paul again. In this uh, particular instance, he finds himself being drugged before um, a tribunal, a, uh, a group of sort of religious authorities to decide what to do with this man. And they're debating. But as soon as he brings up the resurrection, we're told that the debate becomes so violent That the Roman tribunal literally has to intervene and detain him. Otherwise, he would have been ripped apart. Later on, after he is arrested and transferred to different sort of Roman authorities in the region, he eventually gets brought before a king and his wife. King Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. I love that. Of all of the ancient sort of Greek names, Bernice cracks me up. It doesn't sound like an ancient Greek name. Anyway, he's brought before King Agrippa and his wife. And Paul is telling the story. Again, he's talking about this Jesus that people are already beginning to hear about. The story is beginning to spread and this Jewish Messiah who made these um, incredible claims about who he is, his identity, where he came from, what he had come to do. And of course, the teachings, the miracles, all of this talk about this, um, quote unquote, sacrificial lamb, God who had come and dwelt among his own creation and had laid down his life to make a sacrifice. For our sins. The king knew about all of these things. Paul says none of this happened in some dark corner someplace. But then as soon as Paul talks about the resurrection. We're told that um, one of the Roman governors there. A guy named uh, Festus. He interrupts Paul and he yells. Paul you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Resurrection from the dead. And this was. The great controversy. What is it about the resurrection? The post-mortem appearances of Jesus that caused so much controversy. And what makes it such a pivotal element of the Christian story, of the identity of Jesus? What is it about the resurrection that's so important? So, shall we talk about it? Let, let me ask it this way. This is, this is how we're going to approach it. What would Christianity be without the resurrection? Nothing. Nothing. Well, that's a simple way of putting it. Mm-hmm. What would Christianity be left with it, without the resurrection of Jesus? And secondly, what are the implications For those who do believe, some mocked um, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris, among some others. They believed. What are the implications if one believes that Jesus is alive? Let's start with the first question. What would Christianity be without the resurrection? I'll put it this way. Without the resurrection, Christianity is reduced to just another myth of maybes. A myth of maybes. Have you ever heard of that? I made it up. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe Jesus was the Messiah. Come to conquer Satan and offer forgiveness of sins and freedom for all. Or maybe he was just an incredible teacher who inspired the masses and whose identity was elevated to mythical status by his followers long after his death. Maybe. Maybe. There's been a lot of uh, epic teachers to live and to uh, impact their world. And they all died. Maybe. Maybe Jesus was just another Incredible teacher. Or maybe Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Christ who would suffer death for our sins, then rise on the third day, leaving shame and condemnation to rot in the grave. Maybe. Or maybe he was just another martyr, eventually immortalized as some kind of quasi-deity by his most die-hard followers. Maybe he's just a reboot of the myth of Horus. You guys read about this online? This is like one of the big arguments against uh, the Christian notion of resurrection. They say, oh, this is just a reboot of that old Egyptian myth. The, the god Horus, who apparently uh, had a very similar sort of uh, like resurrection experience. The Parallels are uncanny, actually. Um, and so one might argue, like, oh yeah, there, there we go, there it is. It's just another. It's a. It's a. It's a myth rebooted. It's like Hollywood. We've been doing it forever. Maybe. Maybe. Of course, um, I would point out that in the case of this um, this ancient Egyptian myth, the god Horus, who apparently was who died and who came back to life three days, there was only two witnesses, just two. Ra and Isis, other gods. So, I don't know. Just saying. Just saying. Or maybe, maybe there's no maybe about it. Because, in fact, Jesus verified his claims. Because Jesus declared that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. as a sacrificial offering for our sins. And because Jesus declared that he would destroy the works of Satan, even death itself, and that he, and that we could have assurance of these things because Jesus also declared that he would come back from the dead three days later, and he did. And so maybe... Maybe Jesus wasn't just another teacher. Maybe Jesus wasn't just this uh, motivational martyr. Maybe Jesus, who made these incredible claims about his identity, who he was, what he had come to do, maybe he was exactly those things. And we can have assurance of the fact because he came back to life. And as I understand, there was actually quite a few witnesses. But without the resurrection, Christianity, Jesus, everything that we know about the man devolves to a mere myth of maybes. Because who's to say, really? A lot of people have made a lot of claims over the centuries, a lot of gurus have come and gone, a lot of martyrs have done uh, incredible things. Thank God for all of it. But Jesus wasn't just another teacher. He wasn't just a reboot of an ancient myth all over. He wasn't just a martyr. He said that he was someone who'd come to do something very particular and that we can have assurance about these things because he's coming back to life. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Have you ever, have you ever um, thought through the implications? I mean, other, other than the fact that, like, if someone makes some audacious claims about who they are and how their life and death is going to change the course of human history, you might, you might be inclined to listen to them. But if then they go on to say, and if in case you're wondering, how you might verify these things. I plan on not only dying, but conquering death. I will come back to life. Now you might want to lean in. That's someone who you might want to really listen to, really consider. Some believed, others mocked. Festus yelled, Paul, you're out of your mind. The king, Agrippa, he was like, hold on now. Hold on. Let's listen to the man. Let him keep talking. What are the implications of the resurrection? What do you believe? Um, there's something very unique about Christianity. Now, no one really likes... Um, I, don't know. I, don't, I don't like saying, you know, our religion is better than yours. It's like kind Of a turn off, um, but it is okay. So, uh, <clears throat> well, let me put it this way there's just something very unique about Christianity because if you're gonna actually like take it for what it is, consider it for what it claims to be at the very heart of it, at the core, when, when you get down to bedrock, you find that the whole, um, the way the, the people who believed in Jesus in the first century. They weren't just propagating um, a new myth or, or a philosophy or a worldview or some sort of like hybrid of, of, a, of, of like an old belief mixed with some like new symbolism. No, it's, the New Testament in particular, the gospel accounts are very, very um, deliberate. Something happened. There was an event, an historical event. The resurrection of Jesus. Now you either believe it or you don't. But you've got to figure that out. You've got to do the research. Some of you might even be surprised. Like, there's research? Well, how does one research anything that happened a long time ago? You go to Israel. People have been digging up that town, that nation, for many, many years. I was there. I was there about what, 20 years ago, maybe? They're still digging that place up. There is compelling, I would say, compelling archaeological evidence that would strongly suggest that something did, in fact, happen. Now, I wasn't there, nor was anyone still alive there to witness the event. Man, something happened. What are the implications? What do we do with that? This is where it gets fun. Oh, by the way, um, when you consider the, the quote-unquote evidence, and I put it in air quotes because we're not talking about like scientific evidence. We're not talking about imperial evidence per se. Not even archaeological evidence is scientific in that way. It's historical evidence. It might be the kind of evidence that you bring to a, a court of law, eyewitness testimony, what kind of evidence is there? And it's interesting when you consider the evidence. When you begin to research and read all of the eyewitness accounts, um, the New Testament is riddled with eyewitness testimony. They don't want you to just believe it as if it's like a myth to maybe ponder. It's like no these are these are facts to process. There were people alive and. I would argue that the Christian faith would never have made it out of the first century. Not as it stands. I'm not saying there aren't other religions that haven't survived over the years. But the idea that the Messiah who claimed to come and die for the sins of the world who would be buried in the rise again. Okay, that, that's what Jesus said over and over. If it didn't happen, then it would only be a matter of years before everyone was like, yeah. Moving on. Okay, it didn't happen. The guy was crazy. Good teacher, give him that. Uh, Arguably an honorable martyr. But he obviously didn't come back from the dead, so. But he did. And the New Testament says, witness, witness, witness. I was there. I encountered him. At one point, there's a reference to 500 people who all bore witness to the resurrection of Christ. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? What are the implications of the resurrection? Let's say we're at the Areopagus. Listening to this man named Paul. They say he was a short man. Paul literally means short. He was probably quite unimpressive impressive to look at. But man, he's got something to say. He will not be silenced. So he finds his way to this, uh, this place where all the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, the Greek, you know, um, intellectuals would gather. They would debate and process new teachings, political opinions, and all sorts of other things. And they hear Paul Some of them are like, this guy is like rambling on about some sort of like foreign deity. They keep talking about um, this, what's he calling him? Messiah? It's some Jewish thing who apparently died but then came back to life. And many were just, they wanted to ride him off. It's crazy. He's, He's babbling. Others were like, no, no, let's hear him. Let's hear him. Let's give him a chance. So there he is standing in the center of the Areopagus. It's like a little hill. It's a rock. Begins talking. You can imagine most of the people there are kind of looking at him like, man, you're you're obviously um, smart, clearly educated, but resurrected from the dead? Hmm. That's that's something else. And there's Dionysius, the Areopagite. I don't know what an Areopagite is. It sounds like someone who like kind of basically just lived there. That was his, like that was his jam. That was his thing. He was just constantly at the Areopagus, debating, listening, considering all of these different claims. And then Damaris and a few others. They're like, man, I, I, think, I think what he's saying might be real. I think I believe him. Do you believe him? Do you believe in the resurrection? You ever, ever have like a moment of honesty with yourself and think, man, that's a really weird thing to believe. Hmm. It is, it is a little bit, what a bizarre thing to believe. Um, Paul, our guy here, he'll uh, often share his story of conversion, how he came to believe Um, goes something like this he was on his way to Damascus with some uh, papers from the religious authorities he was given authority to basically imprison Christians stamp out this new sect that was beginning to get off the ground in the first century he hated Christians was convinced that not only was Jesus a charlatan but he certainly did not come back from the dead On his way to Damascus, Jesus meets him. The way he describes it, there was this blinding light. Him and his companions were all like overwhelmed with this bright light from heaven, at least is the way he describes it. And Paul, just Paul, hears this voice and it's Jesus. And Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? It's Jesus, it's Jesus, the guy you hate. And he says, Paul, isn't it hard to kick against the goads? When was the last time you tried kicking against a goad? You guys feeling me? Like, what on earth is a goad? I looked it up. It's this, uh, like, first century, it's like an ancient idiom. Some, some sort of, like, a farming metaphor. A goad is what a farmer would use to, like, get a stubborn oxen to, to go forward. And every time the oxen would kind of, like, kick, the goad would, like, poke them. Sounds quite inhumane, honestly. But that's what they did. And Jesus is like, isn't it difficult to resist me? How, how long do you reckon you want to keep doing this? Do you know that feeling? I do. You're like, well, I don't know if I believe. But there's something in you they are like, oh, but you do, don't you? you? You know I'm alive. You know I've been pursuing you. You know I love you. You know I was there, right? You know, and Jesus, 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 constantly showing up. You're like, no, 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 no. You quickly go home, get on the internet, like, yep, there it is, I knew it. Resurrection's fake, it's fake. And you're just resisting, you're just resisting. No, I won't believe, I won't believe. Why, why do we do that? Now, to be fair, there's some like really smart people out there who have like these intellectual objections. Fair enough, I think that's legit, and I think a lot of us use that as an excuse. Oh, I'm just too, too smart, too intellectual. Are you really? Really? How smart are you? Because I know some really smart people, at least a few, way, way smarter than me, scientists even, and they believe in the resurrection. How about that? Now, I haven't answered the question. What are the implications of the resurrection? Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris leave with Paul that day. What next? What, is, what does this look like in real life terms? If one was to say, "As I believe that Jesus was the son of God, that he died for my sins, and he's alive. I want to follow this Jesus. I want to figure out how to trust him with my life. What are the implications of that? Romans 811 let me read this to you. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. therefore consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, because he lives because. The spirit of Christ, the same spirit who caused Jesus to conquer death now lives in the believer. There's something different about the life we now live. In this life, something begins in the inside but then begins to work out. In all aspects of our life, the implications are manifold. They're eternal. They're epic. I will give you three. Number one, because he lives, we can hope. I could have just started there and ended there. Hope. We can hope. Because Jesus is alive. There is nothing in this life, not even death itself, that can cause me to say, you know what? What's the point? I'm only um, putting off the inevitable. We're all going to end up just worm food someday anyways. Well, to be sure, we're all going to go back into the dust. From the earth we came to the earth we go. But the Spirit of God who lives in us makes us alive in Christ, even in the face of death. We can be confident. We can be assured There's something good waiting for us on the other side. We can hope. We can hope. Um, I love this. The Areopagus. It's um, literally translated. It means um, Ares Rock or Ares Hill or the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. Now, at this point in time, uh, it would have been the Romans controlling the region Um, the Roman god of war is called Mars, which is why sometimes the Areopagus is actually referred to as Mars Hill. Mars Hill, the god of war. We live in a world where war is a reality. Violence. Conflict. I'm, I'm talking about bombs. I'm also talking about just in our city in our families heck in my own like inner world sometimes i do the most violence towards myself and here's paul standing on mars hill proclaiming the resurrection of christ there is a god in heaven he's not unknown he's not far off and he's not even just a figment of man's imagination His name is Jesus, and he's alive. He has conquered death. So even in the face of violence, even in the face of war, even in the face of all of the chaos that goes on and that has been going on in our world, we can hope because Jesus is alive. Hope isn't just sentimental. It's not fingers crossed, let's go and try to get through life. Hope becomes a reality because Jesus is alive, because death has been conquered, and Jesus invites us to follow him, the hero, our victory, the one who faced down death and overcame because he's alive, we can hope. That's your cue to shout amen, hallelujah. That's that's all the energy I got, okay? Mm. You guys have any idea how much pressure is put on a pastor on Easter Sunday. This like Someone said Super Bowl. You're right. I'm like, God, don't let me miss the kick. Don't let me miss the kick. <laughs> I need some amens and hallelujahs, all right? Yeah. Make me feel like I'm doing good. Because Jesus is alive, I can hope. Well, okay, thanks for the effort. Number two. Okay, this one, you're not going to expect this one. Because Jesus is alive, we can repent The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know, if Jesus wasn't alive, the command to turn from our sins, uh, the command to repent would actually be reduced to more of a a type of introspection. Feel bad about yourself and your sins. Like turn away from your sins. You're like, all right, I'm I'm turning. I'm turning. Where am I going? Who who am I looking at? Where, Where is this? Well, just feel bad. Take a long, hard look at yourself. I brought a mirror. I brought a prop. It's Easter. This is the mirror I used to shave in the morning. <laughs> Repent. A day will come when Jesus will judge the world. Sin will be dealt with once and for all. Evil will be dealt with once and for all. The evil out there and the evil in here. Okay, I'm no better than anyone else. And nor are you. Jesus will come. And unless we have sought refuge in the Savior, we will be forever separated from the God of all love. So Jesus talked very plainly about cell or cell, hell. Can't even say it. He talked very plainly about a day, a, the terrible day of the Lord is how the New Testament puts it. When everyone, living and dead, will be judged not according to your standards or your standards or my personal standards, but according to God's righteousness, his holiness, his standard of love. Not just intention or God knows my heart. And God knows my heart. It's terrifying. God sees my heart. Hmm. What a a terrifying thought. Which is why he sent his son to rescue us. To say the world in its current state left to itself. Humanity is just going to continue to repeat history. And we will be forever lost. Heck, we will condemn ourselves to hell over and over and over again. But God is on a rescue mission because he loves us. He came to rescue us, to make a way to suffer for us and invite us home. And so he says, repent, turn away from your sin and look to me. But if Jesus isn't alive, all we're really looking to is just some some dead guy's teachings, just some principles that we're supposed to apply And I can repent, but after a while, it's not really repentance. It's just introspection. I'm just looking at myself. Or I'm looking at the God that I've sort of created according to my own imagination, who looks a lot like me, actually. Go figure. Go figure. Or perhaps I get tired of looking at myself because I hate myself. And so I turn it. I'm like, okay, let me me look at all y'all. You guys are way prettier than me. That That doesn't help at all. I can compare myself and I just look and look. And then some would say, well, just, you got to look harder. You got to look deeper, look deeper inside and you'll find the light. And so I look really, really hard. I'm looking, I'm looking. I'm like, no, it's still just me. And I, but I'm still looking just me. The harder I look, the more of me I just see. And so repentance just leads me to this downward hopeless spiral of introspection not new life, not salvation, not healing, not God's love, just me or the people I might be tempted to compare myself to. Because Jesus is alive, I have a friend to turn to. My friend who's closer than a brother, Jesus. Not just the idea of Jesus, not just the concepts that he may have handed down, but Jesus, who wants to help me, who wants to walk with me, who wants to strengthen me, who wants to love me, who wants to comfort me, who wants to teach me, not just give me a track, some concepts to memorize and maybe kind of, if I try hard enough to follow, but Jesus, my living King, who introduces himself personally, which means repentance isn't just me feeling bad about my sins or me feeling like dirt because of the sins that have been committed against me. Repentance means I get to turn to Jesus, who's alive, who comes close, who helps me, who changes me. And repentance in that way as scary as the word is, as heavy as it sounds, repentance becomes this, like, good news that Jesus is inviting me to turn to him. And he gives me grace. He gives me himself. He teaches me how to give and receive, how to receive and give love like he does. That is good. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's Easter. <laughs> Lastly, can I invite the worship team to come up, please? Lastly, Because Jesus is alive, we can celebrate. Mm-hmm. Life um, is life is interesting. The ups and downs. You guys know. We all know. Sometimes man life is great,' I'm so happy to be alive. other times i'm like, man, this is just complicated. I honestly don't know if it's worth it. but because Jesus is alive, um, like the whole story that we call life, it gets reframed. like I can skip to the ending, ending. I mean i can't like like literally hit a fast forward button but I can I can peek. I can go to the last page and be like, oh I suspected Jesus wanted the end. I, I suspected this was going to end in a very, very good place. Because at the end, when we meet up with Jesus again, right right now we we um, interact with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Or the Spirit of Christ as he's referred to elsewhere. But in the end Jesus is going to come back and bring us home, to be where he is, to experience him in a way that we've only ever gotten a foretaste of um, before. You know what the scene is? You know what the story is? We're all sitting around a big table and it's described as this wedding feast, The bride and the groom come together. Jesus is the groom and the church, that's us. We're the bride. It's a it's a great love affair. I don't know if you have ever been married or recall your wedding night, but it is cause for celebration. It's actually a little awkward. Um, But that's another story. It's so beautiful. (laughs) It's so wonderful. Some of you are looking like, why did you say that? It's Easter. It's Easter. It's a wedding banquet. It's a feast. There's food and there's friends. And not a single tear can be found. Because Jesus is alive, we get to celebrate. We are a celebratory people. Even when life is hard. Even when we're experiencing what we might I think of it as like the death of Christ. He invites us to join in the fellowship of his suffering. He teaches us to love like he loves. That is to lay our lives down the way he laid his down for us. That's that's painful. Taking up your cross is super hard. It costs something. But even in the midst of suffering, we know that in the this incredible celebration, this amazing party where it's just joy around the clock. Hope is fulfilled. Our longing is finally satisfied because we get to, to enjoy like up close, intimate, personal life with the lover of our soul. That can be quite challenging. It's like, man, I don't feel like celebrating. My life is too hard. I challenge you. Get a vision. Invite the living King to fill your heart with joy again. Ask him to teach you how to become a celebratory child of God. Even in the midst of suffering, step back and say, Yeah, but I know the ending. I know where this is going. I know that my God is faithful because he conquered death even in the face of death even when it feels like everything is dying around me I could celebrate I can celebrate